This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Nothing can replace the pleasure of turning the pages of the printed book. Join us now as we explore our city's rich literary heritage, talking with people who are passionate about the printed word and celebrating the Dunedin Athenaeum and Mechanics Institute's fascinating local history. Welcome to Wireless Books. Welcome everyone and welcome Christine back to another edition of Wireless Books. You guessed it, we're from the Athenaeum and Mechanics Institute and I think we need to plug the library a bit more. See if someone wants to join our merry little band of bibliographs. Mm. Well, the price has not gone up the entire time that we have been recording this show, which seems to be for a very long time. It's a very economical $69, which includes the GST. So, cost of living crisis be damned. We have remained very cheap, very affordable. And if you want to, if you love reading books, we're the place to go to because you can get them here first without long waits. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, let me talk about some of the great books we have. I'm going to start with a Scandi author that I have never heard of before. Now, Tove is her first name, Alestradal. I'd, I'd call it Alstadal. Ulsterdale, mm, yes. So anyway, I think this is her second book, and I was very taken by the title of it, You Will Never Be Found, which I think is very ominous. As a Scandi author would do very well, I should think. Yes. Now, we start in a small mining town that is actually on the process of the... The town is being, the mine has been decommissioned and the town is being moved. And so the, 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 the houses are empty essentially and they are about to be jacked up, put on the back of trailers and moved to a new location. And there's a sort of, um, it's a, a, a guy that's part of one of the locals, He's, his job is to assess any damage and to, to organise this move and there's just about two weeks before it's to happen there's an earthquake so this he's gone out to assess to see if there's any damage and while he's doing that he hears a noise and first of all he thinks there's an animal trapped in the basement and he's sort of a bit uncertain about it and so he they go down, he, him and his, his younger offsider, they, they go down to the basement. But the basement is sort of closed off with a heavy steel door, which seems a bit weird, and they can't hear anything. So they go outside and they look, at, there's a window into the basement and they, they look trying to see anything. And they can't see anything, but they hear this noise again. So they actually break the window and they shine their torches into the basement and they see there's a person there um, really in a very bad state and so they, they as you do they call the police meanwhile in a city not that far away that a family has reported their father as as missing he he he's divorced and he's living in an apartment, but um, he's and he's an actor, 
and he's supposed to be going to, he's got a job, you know, some work, and he hasn't turned up, and his, his daughter was worried about him and has sort of nagged her mother into doing something about it, so they called the police, and, and the police turn up at, at his flat, and it, it's un, untidy, but there's no, doesn't seem to be any signs of struggle, and it just doesn't look like the sort of place that anybody who was going somewhere would leave, like this, the rubbish hasn't been put out, all that sort of thing. But it, So it's just a bit of a mystery. So you've got these two strands and of course they're going to come together. And so the investigator is um, who the local detective, Erica, um, she's using her expert knowledge on her hometown. And so she knows one of them must have seen something, but then before she can uncover the truth, someone close to her disappears. So has he fallen victim to the same criminal they've been chasing, and can she put the pieces together in time to save him? So I, you know, that's the sort of thing that you'd, ex- you know, sounds like pure scandy to me, but yes. Now I've got the latest Susan Hill, the latest Simon. No, oh, I can't even pronounce this. Sh- oh, Sarayla. Sh- mm. So, oh, any- well, you asked. I know you. I, I know you're correct, but um, <laughs> I, I even though I've heard it, I still can't pronounce that word because I'm an idiot. So um, it's midwinter, and the body has been discovered in a flat just outside Lefferton, which is his his manor, and. It's a young man who's died of a drug um, overdose, but the flat is so bare, there's there's no furnishings, there's nothing in it, so it doesn't seem as if he actually has been living there, it's just a place he's gone to shoot up or whatever. But, you know, but is it an accidental overdose or is it something even worse? And there's... There's sort of a growing problem with um, drug trafficking and there's a person they, who is called the fat man and he is using young people as, as drug mules and he just, they have burner phones and they just, um, he calls them and they come and collect a package and, and drop it off where he tells them. And so he's got um, plausible deniability and all that. And so Simon is trying to um, get to close this down because they don't want um, drugs to overtake their town. And um, and just things, go, you know, with drugs, people can be very violent and very desperate and things start to go very pear-shaped and, um, and everybody has to rethink their um, provincial policing methods. Now, I've got a book here which is called SAS Rogue Heroes and it's actually been um, made into a television series. Yes. Mm. I haven't, well, I sort of watched the yeah. first, well, not even quite all the, oh, it was it a movie? No, it's a series. Yeah, it was a television series. Yeah, and it was I've watched some but I didn't get back to it. Yeah, and yeah. it played um, earlier in the year, so it's very recent and it's um, also, it's the first authorised wartime history of the SAS and it's by Ben McIntyre who um, wrote, who did the thing about Colditz, which we had at our um, Athenaeum Book Club. And people people really enjoyed it. In fact, a lot of people said, I wasn't looking forward to reading this. I was thinking, this would be a bit dull. <laughs> but they, they found it very interesting. Much- in a prison 
book be dull? I think because you kind of have a feeling that you know about it already, but um, you don't. And actually hearing the true facts is fascinating. And I think this is much the same. Because, of course, the SAS now are a bunch of very professional soldiers. But back then, when they were started, they were some sort of, um, well, I think rogue is, is the best way to describe them. They were just the misfits of the army, and they were they were let let loose and to go out and do what what whatever they could to, to bloody Hitler's nose, sort of that, that sort of thing. And so he's he's got access to the um, official records, although <laughs> these aren't the sort of people that keep records, so some of it is scanty. Mm. But uh, And there's a lot of photographs in here. And, Ooh, um, can I look at the photos? Yeah, yeah, sure. I think, you know, for anybody who is interested in um, war history, this is probably one of the better ones to read. Now, I've got... In so many books are, you know, where would authors be without the, fir- the first two world wars, really? <laughs> this one is called The Lost Wife, and it's by Alison Richman, and it's about a young couple who, um, in Prague, and they, Letka, who was an art student, and Joseph, who was studying medicine, and they fall in love, and um, they marry only to be um, separated by the Nazi invasion. And so Joseph makes his way to America and he becomes a successful obstetrician. And he's he's never forgotten the wife, but he believes that she died in the war. So he remarries and starts a new family. And meanwhile, in the Nazi ghetto um, of Trzinsk, Lenska survived, relying on her skills as an artist and the memories of a husband she would never see again. Decades later, and thousands of miles away, they have an unexpected encounter in New York. And this is, um, it's the sort of um, coincidence that seems far-fetched, but probably not so. Um, His grandson marries her granddaughter and all the family meet for the first time at the wedding and at the um, reception he he meets his new granddaughter-in-law's grandmother and it's his it's his wife and so so where do they go from there and so it has flashbacks and explains how they both survived and um, what they do with their unexpected meeting they I think they're both widowed now so um, if they want to get together again they are free to do so so will they or won't they and finally I have the book binder of Jericho and it's by Pip Williams who uh, her previous book was the dictionary of lost words and this is a book set during the First World War and Jericho is actually the name of a college in Oxford and Oxford has been had the privilege of being able to print books since the 15-somethings or maybe the 16-somethings for a very long time and so the Oxford Press is um, very old and very esteemed and lots of people living in Oxford weren't there to attend university they were there to work in the press. And the history of the press tends to be the history, or the official history of the press tends to have been the history of the men who worked in the press. But they've always hired women to to bind the books together because the old-fashioned 
process of making a book. You cut the pages, you folded them, and then you sewed them together, which was women's work. And actually um, setting the print and printing it was men's work. So it was sort of divided into the men's section and the girls' section of the press. And the girls' section was just sort of overlooked. And she, when she was researching the Dictionary of Last Words, um, sort of stumbled on t- onto the story of these bookbinders and then she started, decided to use them. F- she came up with a, she f- saw a character and um, started following her. And the interesting thing about Pitt Williams is she's actually an Australian, so she's written these two historical books set in England and with a lot of... Um, a lot of research done, but a lot of it was done in Australia, strangely enough. So anyway, this um, tells the story of two sisters. Um, One of them, um, Peggy, she she would love to actually attend Oxford and she's she's bright and when she's when she's folding the pages up, she longs to actually be able to read more than the sentence or two that she can see as she's cut as she's folding. And she would she just her dream would be to you know, to go off somewhere and read these books that she's making. And her sister Maud, um well they're actually twin sisters and Maud she seems like she's sort of got autism or something. She's something not quite right with her, and so Peggy has to watch out for 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 Maud. And that's you know she's a poor you know, yeah a poor working girl, and her dream of attending Oxford. Well, even women of a high status who attend Oxford can't graduate as 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 um they just they can attend, but they they're not grad. They're not allowed to get degrees and all this sort of thing. So it's a very, yeah, very sexist world. And the se- the First World War changes everything. And I think Peggy goes off and um, and volunteers as a nurse as, as such. So she has she has an interesting war. Well, as did many young women, many, many, many young women. Which actually brings me to now we touched on it in the last program, but because you're mentioning. Um, Women's rights suffragettes again. Uh, it was seventeenth um, of September. We celebrated Suffragette Day because that's when one hundred and thirty years since New Zealand uh, were. Um, I hate saying gave, but New Zealand women passed legislation. Pa- yep, yeah, for um, our our Wahine well, to vote for the first time, and without that. I mean, all that time ago, 130 years ago, where when you when you think of it, really, in the history of the world, is just 10 mm. minutes, really, and how far um, women have come. That would never have happened um, if it wasn't for people who really fought, because there was such a lot of violent and horrible resistance to it. Men were scared. Some women were scared as well. But without them, this. Uh, Song Hiawatha would never have come about by a young band of women from Dunedin. Look, blue go purple.
Wonderful. Well, that brings me back. When I was in London, a friend did me a mixtape of um, various um, New Zealand artists, and that was on one of them, and I loved this. So, yeah, from London, we're going to go back to um, more of George V. I hope you're not getting too tired of this, but um, I'm, I'm loving him. And so this is um, how they spent their time in Windsor once they were um, king and queen. Some found evenings at Windsor rather stiff. After dinner, the king and the men withdrew to the further white drawing room where they smoked standing up. The queen and the ladies retired to the nearer green drawing room and sat down. At about quarter past ten, the king comes into the nearer drawing room and the queen and everyone else stand up and remain standing for the rest of the evening. That is until about half past eleven. Oh, that'd be tiring. Well, the king moves around talking to people. At half past eleven or a little earlier, the queen and the ladies retire. The king goes back to smoke again for a short time and then to bed. And... uh, it's just George loved that very prescribed, um, very routine thing. That's just um, the way. That's just the way he was. Now I've got um, more about him. Um, some yeah, a person Jeffrey Thomas stayed at York Cottage. Now York Cottage was the it probably wasn't that small, but it was a tiny cottage and everyone was astonished that um, the heir to the throne lived in this tiny little cottage. It's about five bedrooms and whatnot. And, um, but the king, George, loved it. Um, Mary, not so much. And so he, he stayed in December 1914 and described the king after dinner wearing big tortoiseshell spectacles and reading out bits from the newspaper. So, you know, that his eyesight was already not the best. And generally adding explosive comments about the Germans. George had at first resisted the anti-German clamour. When he was pushing when he was pushed to take down the heroic heraldic banners in St George's Chapel, Windsor, which belonged to the eight Garter Knights, who were enemies of Britain in the war he refused. Now you know that that and each time someone becomes a, a member of the Order of the Garter, they have a banner made and the, it's hung up in the chapel. And when when the Garter Knight dies, it's taken down and then put somewhere else. No, so, I didn't know that. But yeah, yeah I, th- I remember seeing something about it. Um, I think when Sir Edwin Hillary died. Oh. So it's sort of a quite a moving thing, and also. Yes. Um, Maybe after Windsor was repaired after the fires. So anyway, he refused to do that. Um, but in October 1940, he had been forced to yield to the demand of the for the sacking of Prince Louis of of Battenberg, the first sea lord. Then that a German should head the Royal Navy was unacceptable in wartime. Even though, as George wrote, there is no more loyal man in the country. Now. Prince Louis of Battenberg is actually um, Louis Mountbatten's mm. father. Mm. Um, right, so George received heaps of abusive letters about his first cousins who were fighting against Britain. Charles Edward, Duke of 
Kohlberg had chosen the German side, and so had the son of Princess Christian Al- oh. Albert of Salzburg-Holstein, an officer in the Prussian army. George explained to Asquith that cousin Albert wasn't really fighting on the side of the Germans, as he had been put in charge of English prisoners in a camp near Berlin. A nice distinction, observed the Prime Minister. Queen Alexander, George's mother, whose hatred of the Germans stretched back over half a century to the Prussian invasion of Denmark in 1863, wrote to her son that the time has come when I must speak out about those hateful German banners. And on the 14th of May 1915, so that's about a year after the war started, behind locked doors, the eight enemy banners were dismantled. The king was not present. The garter banners that were removed from were the German Emperor, the King of Wittenberg, the German Crown Prince, the Grand Duke of Hesse, Prince Henry of Prussia, the Duke of Saxe-Colberg, the Duke of Cumberland, and that they were all relatives, and the Emperor of Austria. So, yeah, it was a, a big thing for George to, um, for that to well, happen. So, well, um yeah, okay, George, it sounds like a right-spoiled monarch. You've got members of your family fighting on the other side, while in the meantime, your subjects are losing their lives and everything, fighting them. So, blow your ba- banner. Blow your banner, George. No, making me angry. I don't like <laughs> him at all. Well, I've actually got other things about him really? that um, will change your mind. No, it's just, it um, won't. Yes, it will. It won't. And I'm unanimous in that. I've got a royal story, actually, a modern one. Oh, go ahead. Okay. Well, my daughter's a team leader's wife is in the armed forces. Now, she is over um, taking part um, in ceremonies at the Invictus Games. Mm. Now, she threw her poi into the audience and Meghan Markle caught it. She probably was afraid she was going to be bonked. <laughs> no, that's a lovely royal story. That's lovely. That's so exciting. Imagine you're just throwing, you know, you're there representing your country. You know, you're there for a wonderful sporting event for our wonderful, wonderful men and women who, you know, do service for our country, representing our country on a sporting stage, and you're there and got your boy, beautiful, beautiful boy, and you throw it into the crowd, and Meghan Markle catches it. Now that's a royal story. And on that note, everyone, happy before, reading. Yes, before Christine goes really mad at me, happy <laughs> reading. Oh, such fun, Christine, such fun. Yes, indeed. <laughs> The Dunedin Athenaeum and Mechanics Institute welcomes new members. Enjoy the Athenaeum's quiet, warmly carpeted library and reading room and share in the joy of books, new and old. Visit www.dunedinathenaeum.org.nz for more information or pop into the Athenaeum Library at number 24, The Octagon. The Dunedin Athenaeum and Mechanics Institute, celebrating Dunedin's rich literary heritage since 1851. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.